All right, we return, uh, as Brent noted in the prayer, to our series on the book of Esther. So we're not in the New Testament, but we are in the Old Testament. In fact, this afternoon, we will also be in the Old Testament, a different book, however. But now, we are in the book of Esther. And if you've been going through this series, you'll remember that God's people are not in their homeland, but they are in a foreign land. They're in this giant empire, in the ascendant most powerful empire at this time, called the Empire of Persia, which I think I noted a couple of weeks ago, is known as modern-day Iran. Now, modern-day Iran is a Shia a Muslim nation, but Islam was not in the history books yet at this point. It had not originated and developed. Uh, so this is before that time. So Persia is uh, very much uh, a nation that serves foreign gods, not the God of Israel, not the God of the Jews. At any rate, without going into all the details, the Jews are in uh, the nation of Persia. And while they're in the nation of Persia, and we see this throughout the book of Esther, and we see this also in chapter 3, that God's people, the Jewish people, um, are always facing two monumental threats. One is assimilation. That is where over time they start to lose their Jewish religious identity and become absorbed into the worldview and the gods of the Persian Empire. So that was a threat. But another threat was this, not so much assimilation as, as we're going to see in chapter 3, annihilation, extermination, the destruction of the Jewish people. And the Jews never knew, given that Persia was not their land, that the powerful individuals within the land of Persia might turn on them and seek to exterminate them. And that's exactly what we see in chapter 3. So, what does this matter of assimilation and annihilation have to do with us today? We're going to be taking a look at that. So, let's go to Esther chapter 3. It's where we pick, off, uh, pick up where we left off last week. We are introduced now in the opening verse here of Esther 3 to a man named Haman. And he's going to figure prominently uh, in the book of Esther from this point on. And he's going to be the catalyst to destroy the Jewish people. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, now remember, Mordecai is the cousin of Esther, Esther who is now queen. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So... As they had made known to him, the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. 
Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand, and he gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was sent, uh, or was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then we read this final bit here. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So, things are not looking very good here for the Jewish people. You know, it is a, it is a solemn duty of every Christian pastor to, uh, as Paul says to Timothy, preach the word, more particularly to preach the gospel. You know what gospel means, right? Gospel means good news. The good news of what? The good news of Jesus Christ. All right. But you know, you, 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 you read a passage like this, and I, I don't know about you, but you've got to do a lot of digging, don't you, to find the gospel here. Because listen to how it ends. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So yeah, it's fine for the king and for Haman who hatched this plot to exterminate the Jews. They sit down at the end of the day and they have a drink. It's all good. But we read here that the city of Susa, the capital city, was thrown into confusion. In other words, people are anxious, people are worried, whether they are Jew or non-Jew. People hear about this plan of extermination and a lot of blood is about the flow. Not real great news. We'll get to the good news a little bit later on. We're going to look at a lot of bad news to begin with, though. Because as Christians, we live in reality, and sometimes you like to, yeah, have to talk about the bad news, you know, even though we may not like it, in order sometimes to get to the good news. So the bad news is this. You know, uh, if, if, you are, if you're somewhat familiar with this book and some of the the, the story of the Bible moving from the Old Testament to New Testament, and especially if you know somewhat about the Old Testament, you realize that, that God's people have oftentimes been on edge, and they've oftentimes um, came to the brink of extermination. Many times. 
You know, there always seemed to be some person, some tribe, some nation, something that threatened the very existence of the people of God. And, and we see that throughout history, through the history of the Bible, throughout church history, even today in many nations. Now, right now, you and I have freedom to worship right here, and we're not, we're not too afraid to worship here. Now, we don't know if that can change in time, but the fact of the matter is there are many nations who feel threatened at this time, or many, many Christians within nations. Now, the reason why I say that, because we have just one stark example of that here in our, our passage. We have a man who is introduced in the very first verse in this passage, who is a very significant figure and stands at the very center of the plan to exterminate the Jews. His name is Haman, right? We read that name Haman on a number of occasions. But if you read chapter 3 carefully... And it's very easy to pass over this if you just crack open your Bible one day and read through chapter 3. But there's something very significant in this passage regarding Haman. On a number of occasions he's called Haman, but on two separate occasions, I don't know if you caught this, but his name is Haman the Agagite. Now, we can read that and kind of go in one ear and out the other, and we move on in the story, but any Jew who's familiar with their history We'll have bells going off at this point. Ring, 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 ring. Oh, let Haman the, not just Haman, Haman the Agagite. Here's the significance of that. Um, when it says Haman the Agagite, Agag is a representative name of a dynasty of kings among the tribe of Amalek. And Amalek was, was a tribe in the history of the Bible that sought at one point the extermination of the Jews. Now, bear this in mind. You also read not only about Haman, but you read about uh, Mordecai, the cousin of Esther. Mordecai is a Jew. Keep that in mind. This will come throughout the story over and over again. And by the way, Esther, who is currently queen of Persia, as we've seen in this series, is also a Jew, but that word has not gone out yet. So here you have Mordecai, but then you have Haman the Agagite. Agag was a dynasty name for the kings of the Amalekites. The Amalekites stood against the Jewish people, the very people of Mordecai. And at one point, I don't know if you remember this in the history of the Bible, when God's people left Egypt and they went through a wilderness on the way to the promised land, at one point in the wilderness, the Amalekites as a tribe attacked the people of Israel in order to destroy them, but God spared his people. Now, as people were outnumbered, the people came out of slavery 400 years. They were not a military entity at all. They were very, very vulnerable. The Amalekites knew that. They were going to take advantage of that vulnerability. They attacked the Israelites, but of course, God stood by his people. He prevented their extermination. And from that point on, God cursed the Amalekites. And later on in history, it was King Saul who was ordered at one point to destroy the Amalekites because he had the upper hand, but he didn't fulfill the command of the Lord, and that made the Lord very, very angry. And so what we have here in the story is, and this is a very, very important point that's, that we're going to see throughout the book of Esther. We have in this story Haman versus Mordecai. And this is something very personal between the two of them. But really what we have here is something more representative, a bigger picture, and that is this. We not only have Haman versus Mordecai, 
But we have Haman's descendants, the Amalekites, who stood against God's people and God's people themselves, the Jews. But more than that, even more representative on a broader level, we have two kingdoms in conflict. The kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of good versus the kingdom of evil. The kingdom of church, God's people, and the kingdom of the world. Ultimately, the kingdom of Jesus Christ against the kingdom of the devil himself. That's the big picture. And I, I, poss- you know, I, I don't think it's possible for a pastor to preach on Esther without bringing that out. This is, this is really what's going on here. This is a colossal conflict. So explore that conflict, all right? Now, as I've, I've said, I'll probably say this almost every Sunday, there's always so much when you take a look at the chapter. If we would go through this verse by verse, it's going to take forever. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring in the highlights like I've done in the past, okay? So here's what's going on. You have a man named Haman who is put in a very important position in the kingdom. We don't, uh, and he's put in that position by King Ahasuerus. We don't know what the king saw in Haman. Um, we don't know why he actually put Haman in a very important position. But the main point is, he's in a very important position. So you got the king and you have Haman. And Haman is above all the officials of the land. And because he's put in that kind of position, wherever Haman goes within the king's gate, And around the palace, those who are there must bow down to them. Mordecai is also in the vicinity one day where Haman is walking. He's in the vicinity of Haman and all these officials. And what do we find? The officials begin to bow down to Haman. But there's one man who stands, I guess he stands, as those are bowing down. And he must have been really noticed. And that was Mordecai. And Mordecai refused to bow down before Haman, which, which raises the question, why is that? Probably a couple of reasons. Um, last week we saw that both Mordecai and Esther, uh, while people have a very high view of them in the book, remember last week I brought out a little historical background on them, that they were probably somewhat religiously compromised. But I think Mordecai knew enough to know that as a Jew, you don't bow down before a pagan official, right? First commandment, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment that we saw just a few weeks, or last week, we looked at the second commandment in our catechetical series, that God's people were not to bow down or worship other gods or those who claimed even somewhat divine important status. Why is that? Because God says, I am a jealous God. I do not hold the sin of bowing down. You bow down to me, but you don't bow down to any human being. You bow down before the creator, but not the creature. But here's the thing. Even if Mordecai is not thinking in these religious terms at this point, Mordecai knows that he is not going to bow down before a descendant of the Amalekites. So he refuses. Other people around him try to convince him day after day, please bow, it's not going to bid well for, bode well for you, Mordecai, so please bow down before Haman, but he refuses to do so. And he actually told those around him the fact why he was a Jew. So these individuals understand that Haman is a Jew, 
or uh, Mordecai is a Jew, and they tell Haman. They inform Haman of this. So Haman, as we move on in the story, not only has it against Mordecai, but understanding that he is a Jew and represents the Jew, Haman is going to go not only after Mordecai, but he's going to go after the Jewish people altogether. So, what happens in the story? Haman, see the issue for Haman is not if he's going to go after Mordecai and the Jews. It's not even, according to the story, how he's going to carry that out. But the real question is not if, but when. So we move on the story. What Haman does is he throws the dice, as it were. He throws the lot. It's called the pur, P-U-R, in the Persian. He throws the pur. And that's to determine, indeed, what is the date that this extermination of the Jews is going to take place. Now, what happens? He throws the pur, the Bible says in the story, on the first of the month, the month Nisan. This is a Hebrew calendar. But he throws the lot on the first month, but when the lot is thrown, it shows the date of the extermination of the Jews to occur on the 12th month, the month of Adar. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hold back from stating the significance of that because we're going to look at that a little bit later. But have this stick in your mind because this is a really important point, okay? The 12th month for the extermination of the Jews. All right. Meanwhile, as we move on in the story, um, Haman knows that he doesn't have the authority, as important as he is, and as powerful he is, he doesn't have the authority to carry out this extermination on his own. He needs to get the nod of approval from the king. So what does he do? He starts greasing the skids with the king. Now, I want to draw your attention to verses 8 and 9. So if you have a Bible or device, I want you to take a look at that. This is very, very interesting, and we get a little bit of an insight into uh, just how devious Haman is. Verses 8 and 9. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, now notice this, the, the words of the Bible are important. There is a certain people scattered abroad. He doesn't even mention the Jews. He just says, there's just a, there's a certain people. So he kind of downplays this in a way. There's a certain people scattered abroad, and, he's, and they're dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Now notice especially what comes next. Their laws, he says to the king, are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so it's not really to the king's profit to tolerate them. So what is he saying there? He's saying, king, you've got this, referring to the Jews, you've got this certain people, and, and listen, these, these people... They're, they're not making a conscious attempt to assimilate to Persian culture. They never have. They probably never will. They're always going to be this different people. They have a different identity. they got different laws. And they, they, they obey their own laws, really. And they're not obeying the king's laws. And so it's not really a profit to the king to have them around. In fact... Probably what's going to happen, if they continue in their ways, they're going to be a source of instability in the nation and over time to simply be a national threat. It's no profit to the king to have them around. So, if it please the king, verse 9, let it be decreed that they be eliminated, destroyed. You know, if, I don't know if you know much history about World War II, 
but there came a point where Nazi Germany as Hitler's star was rising. It's not like the Nazi regime immediately went after the Jews. They just started to enact laws that more and more inhibited their freedoms and their economic prosperity. It was all very slow movement until finally it was decided that they would enact what was called the final solution to the Jewish problem. Exactly what we got going on here. There's a precedent. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. Let the final solution be carried out. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charged the king's business that they be put into the king's treasury. In other words, let's eliminate these people. Once they're gone, we'll plunder their goods. We'll put it in the king's treasury. It's all thumbs up. It's all good. Now, the interesting thing in regard to this is that you don't get any indication in the story that King Ahasuerus thinks about this, and then he says to Haman, like, okay, uh, you, meant, you mentioned certain people. Can you give me a few details on it? Who are these people? Um, you mentioned their laws. Can you tell me about their laws? Uh, can you tell me why you think they're going to be an existential threat to Persia, if indeed that's what you're thinking? Um, I, you know, this is a big order to carry out, an extermination of a people. So I need some more details. You don't get any of that. Hazarius signs off on this all because Haman despises Mordecai and he despises the people of the Jews not just because they refuse to bow down to him but more broadly speaking, they refused to be assimilated or absorbed into the Persian culture because of their commitment to be what we call, and this is a term that was used throughout church history, we don't hear much about it today, but, but the, Jews ref, the, the Jews refused to compromise, and here's the thing, they want to remain at least at this point, what we call an antithetical people, a contrast people, a contrast community. They will not lose, in, in, in their entirety, they will not lose their religious identity. Now, I want, I want us to take a little, have us take a little bit of a breather here at this point. And talk about that matter of assimilation. You know, um, it has always been the temptation for God's people throughout history to lose a sense of being a contrast community. And as I stated um, last Sunday, I'll state again, that you have, you have like this, well, I don't know if you see the blue line here. And God calls us to have both feet in Christ and both feet in the body of Christ, the church of Christ, and not to do this. One foot in the church, one foot in the world. He says, beware of assimilation. Beware of compromise. What happens in every church, in every one of our hearts upon occasion, is we are, we are tempted to move both feet, not just, with, not just with one foot into the world, but to transition both feet over to this side and completely into the world. And when you read the Bible time and time again, God is warning his people, listen, it's, it's going to be hard for you, but you need to remain committed to me. 
It's going to require sacrifice and self-denial on your part, but you need to remain committed to me. And, and what you see in the Bible over and over again is God warning his people. So when, when, the, when, the, when, the, when the people of Israel, when the Jewish people are in Egypt for over 400 years of oppression and slavery, God is saying, whatever you do in that land of oppression, do not adopt the gods of the Egyptians. Then they leave Egypt, they go through the wilderness, and they get into the promised land. And you, if you know that history, there's all kinds of tribes in the promised land that they need to drive out. And God says, I want you to drive them out. But as you drive them out, be careful with all these tribes that you don't adopt their gods. Remain faithful to me. Then the people come into Babylon for 70 years of captivity. And this is what the book of Daniel is all about. Beware of assimilation. Remain the antithesis. Keep yourself as a contrast community. Be that light to Babylon. Provide that light, but don't assimilate. Okay? Then it comes to Persia. Same thing. Beware, no doubt, of the Persian gods. And then finally, you get to the early church who are part of the Roman Empire. And God is always saying to his people, and, and the apostles are always writing in the epistles, are saying, beware of assimilation, beware of the gods of the Roman Empire, beware of the worldview and the philosophies and the ideas of the Roman Empire. Remain a contrast people. Even today, I mean, for all of us, we have the encroachment of this Western secular culture in which we live. And I'm, I'm constantly amazed how weary we get sometimes trying to remain faithful to the Lord and even remaining faithful to our church. And it's so easy to slide and slide and, and, and slide. You know, um, real quick, book put out a couple years ago, especially addressed to Generation Z, those younger people in the 20s and the 30s, born after 1997, a book called The Great De-Churching, Who's Leaving, Why, are they, go why they Are Going, and what, will, what It Will Take to Bring Them Back. So, you know what? It's, it's every church faces this. And parents coming along, their kids, teaching them to love the Lord, teaching them to love a place like Pathway over time, to remain faithful to the Lord so that they don't get caught up in the dark world like the prodigal we saw earlier and end up in a pigsty. So God is saying, listen, do not assimilate. And here's the thing, getting back to the story. If, if, if you make the commitment, the self-conscious choice to remain faithful to me amidst the magnetic poles of the culture, not only says the Lord, are you going to be opposed? But at times, you are going to find, depending on what part of history you are part of, you're going to find that not only are you going to be opposed, but at times there is going to be, and I'm just being blunt, there's going to be hell to pay. And why is there going to be hell to pay if you remain faithful to me in the midst of a secular world? And the reason for that is because of what we find throughout church history and what we find in the story here before us. And we should not, we should not uh, be surprised at the level of opposition we may face in the future, right? All right. So you get back to the story, and God's people are not only opposed, but they are facing the threat of annihilation. Hell is bearing down upon them. So Haman is after Mordecai. Haman is after God's people. 
the Jewish people. And the situation is dire. The situation is very serious. And it, it is Haman who actually, as we saw, got the king to sign on to this extermination. And how does the story end when we come to the end of chapter 3? At the end of the chapter 3, as I noted earlier, you got Haman and King Hazarius getting together. They sit down. They have a drink. Now, why is that important to bring that out at the very end of the story? Well, that tells us that Haman and Ahasuerus have no pangs of conscience. There's no wringing of the hands like, oh, man, I don't know if we should have done this. This is not right. No. Their consciences are completely at peace. Meanwhile, Susa, the citadel, the capital, is thrown into confusion. Much like the Jewish people during World War II experienced in the Warsaw Ghetto as more and more the strictures of the Nazis came down upon them. And finally, they went into their apartments in the Warsaw Ghetto where they were all congregated and they started to open fire in order to annihilate those people. The ghetto was thrown into confusion. Citadel, the capital of Persia, is thrown into confusion. And that's how it ends. So it doesn't look good for the Jews. But we say, as Christians, okay, but wait a minute, wait a minute. The plot is hatched to destroy the Jews on a certain date. The city of Susa, we read here, the last thing we read is thrown into confusion, but here's what I want you to remember. The city of heaven is not thrown into confusion, and heaven's war room is completely at peace. Heaven's war room is serene, and why do I say that? Because what I've said throughout this series, and I'm going to keep saying throughout this series, and I want you to look up again, I'll probably do this every sermon, this, the hand of God. The hand of God orchestrating all things, the fingerprints of God over all things. And why do I say that? Because God is one of the most important things of the story. God, not the king, not Haman, not chance, not fate, but God is in control of the calendar. Man, the lot is thrown the first month of the year, the month Nisan. And notice where the lot falls in the end. It falls not on the third month. It doesn't fall in the sixth month or even the eighth month or even the eleventh month. It falls on the twelfth month, the month of Adar, the very last month of the year. Why is that significant? Because by the grace of God, God is giving his people some breathing space. And he's providing them the opportunity to think through this situation and formulate a plan to come up from under this threat of extermination. That's grace. See, that's gospel. That's good news. So the gospel is found here. What is the gospel? God is caring for his people. So I want to leave you with this this morning. Last week I had three applications. I give you just one thing to think about for the sake of simplicity. Again, going back to the beginning of the sermon, what we have here is ultimately a conflict between two kingdoms. A power struggle. 
You find many nations today, you find many tribes, you find many peoples, you find many diverse languages and all of that. But fundamentally, from a Bible's perspective, from a Christian perspective, even even though you have all this diversity, fundamentally, you only have two kingdoms. The kingdom of good versus the kingdom of evil, the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the church versus the kingdom of the world, and ultimately, the kingdom of Jesus Christ versus, as the Bible calls him, the God, quote, of this world, Satan. That's what's at play. My friends... Um, we are at war. We're at war. We're at war every day of our lives. And you have, unfortunately, today, not in every case, there are many faithful churches, but you have a number of churches who just like they're clueless. You never know that they were at war. You know, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, he says, the world hates you. you got to remember that. The world hates you. And the reason why the world hates you is why? Because the world hates me. And if you align yourself with me, you will always be a hated, you will always be opposed, and there may come a point in your life as an individual or as a church that you're going to face very possibly imprisonment or even death for the sake of Jesus Christ. What does the Bible say, Ephesians chapter 6, for we fight not against flesh and blood, but we fight against authorities and powers and dominions and spiritual forces in heavenly places. That's the huge conflict. But never, uh, and I want to, I'll just end with this, and this is a comforting note, because it's kind of heavy, but it's a comforting note. Never in the Bible do you, do you read that God understands or even supports any of this, the wringing of our hands. Instead, what the Bible says is, you and I together have to live not by sight, but live by faith. And we have to ask ask ourselves the question, in reality, despite what we see in the world today, wars and rumors of wars and the persecution of the church and things going on in Iran and in Gaza and in North Korea and with Taiwan and China and all of this, the Lord says, put that aside for just a moment and keep your fixed eyes on Jesus Christ and ask yourself the question, is he seated on the throne or is he not? That's a fundamental question. And I hope no one of us here this morning even has a hesitation to say that Jesus Christ is not on the throne. Sometimes it doesn't seem that way, but he is. And that gives us confidence. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended into heaven? He said, after giving them the great mission commission to continue to, to not separate themselves from the world, but be very much involved in the world, he says, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, let me ask you a blunt question. Was he lying? Think he was lying? When Jesus in the Gospel of John was with his disciples, and he told them he was going to ascend, and his disciples started to wring their hands, wondering, hey, you've been with us for three years. You've been teaching us. You are our friend. What are we going to do without you? And Jesus says, it's to your benefit that I go away. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will be in you and with you forever. Another question. Was he lying? When the Bible said that Jesus ascended 
into heaven. He sat down somewhere. Where? At the right hand of his father. That's a position of authority and power over all things. Let me ask you the question. When the Bible states that, is the Bible lying? When the Bible says in Revelation 19 that Jesus will come back figuratively on a white horse, bearing a sword, and on his thigh it says the Lord of lords and the King of kings. When the Bible gives us that description in Revelation 19, is it lying? And finally this, in the book of Daniel, when we read about the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ being a kingdom that is eternal, universal, and indestructible, in contrast to all the kingdoms of this world that come and go. When the Bible gives us that description, let me ask you this. Is it lying? My friends, all Jesus calls us to do is embrace that comforting truth of his sovereignty. And the only way that we embrace that sovereignty and are comforted by that as I, as I oftentimes say, we've got to come to the end of ourselves and just come to grips with the fact that we are war. We need to embrace our commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ. We need to submit to him, embrace his rule over our lives, and embrace his sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, that we may be in a right relationship with him, loved by him, carried by him, and also those together who will share in his final victory that is to come. So, yeah, um, a lot of bad news here. But as we're going to see as we continue to go on this book, and as we've seen this morning, there's also a lot of good news. King Jesus is on his throne. King Jesus is on his throne. Praise God for that. Take that with you today and in the coming week. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel, the good news of Jesus. The good news that despite all the confusion and carnage, and bloodshed, and wars of this world. And even despite some of the diminishment of the freedoms that we have to carry our convictions, and despite the opposition that we sometimes face in this world, Father, we thank you for the good news that Jesus is on his throne, that we are engraved in the palms of our God, and that nothing in all of created reality will be able to separate us from the love that you have displayed to us, O oh Father, in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for that comforting truth. We pray, Father, that it may be the motivation, the catalyst for us in return to love you, to live lives of gratitude. And if necessary, Father, if we're like the prodigal right now, to come to the end of ourselves that may we come humbly before the King Jesus, seeking his forgiveness and his love and his embrace and the comfort of knowing that from that point on, we are his, no matter what befalls us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.